Hey YA is sponsored by Read Harder 2021. Book Riot's annual reading challenge is back. Once again, Read Harder 2021 has 24 tasks designed to help you break out of your reading bubble and expand your worldview through books. With new genres, new authors, and new points of view, the challenge will hopefully help you discover amazing books you wouldn't have otherwise picked up. Read romance by trans or non-binary authors, non-European books in translation, middle grade mysteries, and more in this year's challenge. Go to bookriot.com slash readharder to get the full challenge task list and to check out the prizing for those who complete the challenge. That's bookriot.com slash readharder. Welcome to Hey YA, from great new books to favorite classic reads, from news stories to the latest in on-screen adaptations, Hey YA is here to elevate the exciting world of young adult lit. Hey YA is a book riot podcast hosted by me, Kelly Jensen, alongside Sarah Hannah Gomez, and we are recording on Thursday, January 14th, 2021, and we can call this episode the lost episode because this one we had actually recorded for last year. Had some tech difficulties, and we're like, okay, but the topic was good. We don't want to lose it. So now it's coming to you in 2021. Yeah, it's like less thematically interesting, but still a great topic. Yeah. I have news for you. Okay, I want to hear it. So it was, I'm pretending it's brand new news, even though I told you (laughs) on our last episode, and we're going to act surprised again, which is, we are both ANTM stands. Mm-hmm. And I learned that Mr. J wrote a book. When you told me this, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And I looked it up and no, it's real. The reviews for it about how horrible it is. But I don't even care. I'm on it. I am on it. I know. I feel the same way. <laughs> Apparently, it is a satire of America's Next Top Model and the modeling industry. And I am completely here for it. I don't care how bad it's going to be. I feel that way about anything related to ANTM. Like, you go in with the expectation of nothing, and um, you can be kind of satisfied that your expectations were met. Oh, it's total cringe, yeah. But And just reading his whole thing where he was like, I could have worked with a ghostwriter. I know that's, you know, kind of what, like, celebrities do. But I really just, like, for my own, you know, like, kind of psychic relief needed to write it on my own and i was like props i don't care if you're a bad writer because like you know exactly what you're doing and how this Mm -hmm. works and i have to give you props for that and this news came up in our conversation because you were telling me about tyra's latest creation and we can both talk about like tyra is a super problematic person and yet like i love her despite all of her flaws because she is so herself like cringeworthy at times and does absolutely ridiculous things and yet is completely like into it and um do you want to share like what her latest little creation is (laughs) yes oh my god i'm so glad you reminded me because that was yeah that was where this started was i was like what's tyra up to because i was you know (laughs) playing some antm in the background because there's some seasons excuse Mm -hmm. me cycles on Netflix and others on Hulu, and I was just kind of bouncing around. So I checked her Instagram, and her latest project is Smize Cream, which is not, you know, make your face look good. It's ice cream. And I'm so excited. 
I love it. I cannot wait to get my hands on some Smize cream whenever that actually exists. And wasn't she working on like a theme park or something as well? Like that was something I heard floating around. Yeah. Like <laughs> I'm not sure if that ever happened. I mean, it sounded marginally better than a theme park that did come into existence based on Dickens and then it didn't do well because <laughs> they hadn't really thought about how nobody wants to go and play games around despair. But I mean, people would go, you know, when it's safe to, of course, people would go eat some ice cream and like take modeling photos, I guess. Right? Like, yeah, I don't fully understand how it would work. I mean, definitely, I guess it would be more of a like, I guess actually theme park is a better word for it. But we think of theme park as like rides and stuff. So definitely, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it would be more like emphasize the park part (laughs) of like roaming around. But yeah. Yeah, kind of like Dollywood, but like Tyra Wood, you know? <gasps> when you put it that way. Yeah. Oh. There's potential. Tyra, call me. Um, we can talk about this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and I'm like almost ready now with my like book proposal about ANT, like a, an unauthorized history slash mm. takedown, scholarly takedown of ANTM. So if anyone's <laughs> listening who wants to pick up that proposal and publish it, I'm here. And I know listeners are going, what does this have to do with young adult? And it has to do everything with young adult because Tyra never finished her series. We got Model Land and nothing else. And I am envisioning at this theme, tar- theme park while you're eating Smize Cream, you get to act out the book trailer for Model Land, which came up in one of the cycles. I can't remember what cycle it was, but it is so, so cringeworthy and yet an utter delight I can never forget. Oh, yes. Oh, Tyra, you have so many good ideas and then just so many bad ones, but mm-hmm. also so many good ones. And I, I do kind of respect ANTM for kind of being awful and <laughs> not that I mean, like some of it is really problematic, awful, and like, yeah, racist yeah, yeah. and terrible. I was watching one cycle where they were like, so-and-so's a transgender. And I was like, whoa, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> but oh, man. also I was yeah. like, but like, Fashion is a deeply problematic world, so I almost kind of respect that you're not hiding that. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, the episode where they had people in like brown face and black face and yellow face was like, who? Yeah. Cringe is putting it lightly, but also I was like, well, it's very realistic at least. <laughs> like, you're not lying. Yeah, it was fascinating. I'm I'm watching one now. I can't remember what cycle it is. It's the one with Takara. And there are so many like conversations between the girls that made me cringe so hard about like race because there's a number of girls of color on this episode. And then some of the white girls are very racist. And the conversations that go on both between the races and then among, you know, the black women and colorism issues are are there. And yet as a as somebody watching it who is watching it in 2021, like these conversations were clearly edited or not very advanced when they were happening. So you watch it now and you're like, oh, this is brutal to watch, you know? Then you look up and it was filmed in 2004 and you're like, okay, well, doesn't make it better, but gives some context to like why this wasn't as nuanced as it could have been. Oh, yeah. I also, I love watching it and... Every time I'm reminded, like, if I watch it and I'm like, oh, my God, that outfit's so cute. I'm like, oh, now I can tell what year this was shot based yes. on, like, I love that outfit and I would have tried to wear it, like, mm-hmm. to a college class or to high school or to, like, whatever age I was. Like, 
It definitely has that twinge of like, I don't know, I feel like the word nostalgia is like bandied around way too much and kind of diluted. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this weird sort of like, I remember what kind of person I was. Yeah. Like when I liked this and for better or for worse, at least like watching it is a weird sort of time capsule of like my my memory reference points for it, I guess, is mm-hmm. like this interesting time capsule. Whew, Tyra. Oh, Tyra. Let's talk about books. I know listeners are at this point like, are they going to talk a whole episode about ANTM? And frankly, we probably could. Maybe that would be an, a good extra credit episode at some point. Oh, that would be fun. Let's hit our first sponsor and then we'll dive in. Both of our topics today are really great. The uh, first sponsor is Tales from the Hinterland by Melissa Albert. It's a gorgeously illustrated collection of 12 original stories by the New York Times bestselling author of The Hazelwood and the Night Country. Journey into the Hinterland, a brutal and beautiful world where a young woman spends a night with death, brides are wed to a mysterious house in the trees, and an enchantress is killed twice and still lives. Perfect for new readers and dedicated fans alike, Tales from the Hinterland will include gorgeous illustrations by Jim Tierney, foil stamping, two-color interior printing, and two-color printed endpapers. For listeners who don't know what that means, that means it's packaged really fancy. And that is Tales from the Hinterland by Melissa Albert. And I love that this book exists because when I read the first book in the series, I was like, when are we going to get the fairy tales? Because that's such a huge part of the story. So I love that they then created this collection of fairy tales that are a huge part of the series. Yeah, it's very meta, kind of like when Rainbow Rowell wrote the Simon Snow novels. But I think (laughs) she wrote the fan fiction versions. I haven't read them, so I only know about them. But yeah, which is kind of like metaception almost, because I think, yeah, she wrote like the fan fiction version of the novels that never existed in the first place. It's, it's good times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always fun when authors do that kind of stuff and do it in a way that new readers can jump jump in like right there or people who've been longtime fans of the series or book get that extra like fan service as well. Definitely. It's a good time. So our our first topic we came up with because we were going to have this show at the very end of last year and we were talking about time running out, about the shortest day of the year, like everything related to time. And so it's kind of funny to think about now because I just had a conversation with the book writer about they had mentioned something related to like, is it too late to talk about things in the new year? Like we're pretty far into 2021 and I had to say, We're two weeks in, like 14 days, that's it. I know it feels like it has been months, but it is 14 days. And um, the topic is books with short time spans. So these are books that are set not in 2020 or 2021 very clearly, but rather I think most of them are within a day or even shorter. I know some of those play with that timeline a little bit, but these are books that are great for readers who are like, I want a story that is confined to a very short period of time that it's not this epic that's going to last years and years in the story but rather like you got 24 hours for this whole thing to play out let's see what happens yeah definitely there is something it reminds me sort of of like the friendships you make at summer camp or any sort of like very condensed non like realistic experience whether that's like at a conference or summer camp or whatever where like relationships get very intense very quickly because you're 
never going to see each other again, or you're at least never going to like know each other in the same, like very focused context ever again. Mm -hmm. So uh, we could do a whole episode about like summer camps and other such experiences too. For sure. I'll kick it off with this book I read near the end of last year and really, really liked, and I hope more people pick it up. And it's, this is all your fault by Amina May Safi. And I have loved reading the reviews of this book because it's very clear a lot of readers don't know the difference between homage and plagiarism. And when I describe what the book is, if you're listening, you'll understand completely. And the pitch is that this is Empire Records, but with three teen girls in the indie bookstore they work at. It's a total homage to the movie, and the author even puts that in the author notes. So there's no, like, there's nothing weird or tricky going on here. It's like, it's very much, love the movie, here's a book that takes these ideas and, and does them a little bit differently. So the Wild Nights bookstore is in danger of being sold and closed, and the teenage girls who work at the store find out about this the day that it's going to happen. So the three of them, they're very, very different girls, and find themselves mostly annoyed with one another all the time. But when they realize that they're going to lose their jobs and jobs that they love for this bookstore that they love, they decide to band together together to find a way to keep the store open. It's told in under 24 hours. It's super fast-paced. At times, it is over-the-top ridiculous. But that's what makes it so enjoyable. And it's the story about the man and how these girls are going to undermine him to keep their bookstore afloat. The, the way Safi told this in such a short time period through three distinct voices was done so well. And this is just a really fun read, particularly for anybody who loves that movie or loves books set in bookstores. And that is This Is All Your Fault by Amina May Asafi. So I'm doing two books as one recommendation because <laughs> they're both by Rachel Cohn and David Levithan, who they are definitely like when they started doing books together, Rachel Cohn was one of my first like YA authors that I used to write like emails to when emailing an author was a thing, I guess, because <laughs> I'm an old. But I was like, oh, my God, you make me want to be a writer, blah, 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 blah. And I love dual perspective books, especially when it's two authors doing them so that you really have like distinct voices. And their first one was Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. That is one of those books where the movie is equally as good as the book, I think. It takes place all in one night. It's these teenagers trying to find a band that's having a secret show that I think announces it on MySpace because it's like 2006. But one of their more recent books is Sam and Ilsa's Last Hurrah. So this one takes place also in New York. New York is definitely like a character in all of their books. And it's about twins, Sam and Ilsa, who have decided to throw like their last blowout party before they graduate from high school. So each of them is going to invite three people, and they're not going to tell each other who those three people are. So it's just going to be like surprise when everyone arrives at the apartment. So there's already this kind of sense of like, how can I one up my my twin? How can I kind of shock them? But also, how can I put together a really good group of people? Like we're going to have eight people in this empty apartment. I don't even remember where their parents are. But, you know, what can we do to make this a really great experience? I listened to it as audio and kind of pieced out when the narrator said Louis Armstrong. And I was like, whew, no. But if you can get past someone saying Louis Armstrong, or if you just want to read it, 
it is like, oh, it's one of those very now I understand why people like to use the adjective voicey, which I don't generally like. But if you like the word voicey, this definitely hits it. They're smart, snarky, very, they have like this very like niche way of talking. Like you can tell that even if it feels unrealistic, it is realistic to them in the same way that like friend groups have their own memes and in-jokes that if you just hear them, you know, out of context, you're like, what? But everyone else cracks up because it means something to them. And I think that's really like a talent that Rachel Cohn and David Levithan have with each other is kind of creating that like that instant feel where you can tell you are with a group of people who have this like shared language and shared experiences that started long before page one. So that's Sam and Ilsa's Last Hurrah by Rachel Cohn and David Levithan and honorable mention to Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. So my next pick is We Are the Wildcats by Siobhan Vivian and Readers who picked up the adult book, We Ride Upon Sticks by Quan Berry, will want to pick this book up, and it will make sense why shortly. Um, and then readers who picked this book up by Vivian will want to pick up Quan Berry's book. So it's about a varsity field hockey team in West Essex, and they're very, very legendary despite losing at state finals last year. To be a girl on this team is to be a true wildcat. So like these are the big, important athletes on campus. The girls who make the final cut this year get together for an annual night before the first scrimmage bonding time. And there's a lot at stake and little has to do with the game itself. Instead, we get six different girls revealing secrets they've kept about the way that their coach has been really toxic to them individually as well as a team. So told over fewer than 24 hours, the six perspectives keep the pace of the book moving while giving a broad and encompassing idea of what it's like to be a female athlete on a team known for being the best. And there's a lot of great stuff here about team bonds, about passion for the game, and about the way that those very things can be used as tools of manipulation from an outsider, particularly from a beloved adult. And the writing is lovely. Each of the voices is distinct. And readers who are looking for a good sports book will do really well here, as will readers who think they don't like sports books. Because yes, field hockey plays a role in it, but it is, like any good sports book, not necessarily the central point of the story. And again, this is another one told in a short timeline with multiple voices. And I think that really keeps the pages turning. That is We Are the Wildcats by Siobhan Vivian. My next pick is They Both Die at the End by Adam Silvera. So Adam Silvera, I think, is his like stamp on the YA world is definitely with the way he does speculative fiction. Like, I see people shelve this in realistic fiction all the time. And I'm like, no, but this is actually like, this is a fantastical element. And this is why we shouldn't denigrate genre fiction, because it's so realistic, but there's one thing off, which technically makes it speculative, but people like to put it in realistic. And then we can talk about genre and judgment and <laughs> genreism all day. But the book, the little bit of speculative fiction part of it is that there is a company called Deathcast that can tell you that you are going to die within 24 hours. And so they'll call you and, you know, they're not, they can't tell you how it's going to happen. They just, they know. And you don't really know how they know. No one really knows how they know, but everyone knows that it's real. 
So we start with a boy named Mateo who gets the call. And then we go to another voice with a boy named Rufus who also gets the call. And in this world, there's a big social media slash cultural phenomenon that goes with this advent of technology slash I don't even know what you would call it, but the advent of Deathcast, where lots of people will kind of like live stream their last day and all of the, you know, bucket list items they're going to do. And there's an app where people can find a last friend. And sometimes that means people who haven't gotten the call who just are like, sure, I'll, you know, help you complete this bucket list item or, you know, help you feel less alone. And other times it's people meeting up because they both got the call. And that is how Rufus and Mateo end up meeting each other. So we get this, you know, just under 24 hours adventure of, you know, kind of finding ways to redeem yourself, finding people to say goodbye to, doing the things you are you always wanted to do, you know, kind of all those bucket list things. It's not melodramatic, but like the title says, they do both die at the end. <laughs> so you really you have like you're not being tricked. You know how it's going to end, so you're just along for the ride of like watching these people figure out how to make meaning of their last day. So that's They Both Die at the End by Adam Silvera. The Voting Booth by Brandy Colbert is my next pick, and it is impossible, I think, for Brandy to write a book I don't love. And I'm really sad this one didn't get as much recognition when it came out as it should have. So this is another one of those short time frame multiple voice stories. and. It starts with Marva, who is a bit uptight, kind of controlling, and she really loves to live by the rules. And she is super stoked to be voting in her first ever election. Duke is our second character, and he is a bit more easygoing, but he has been dealing with some tremendous loss in his life and the challenges of being mixed race. His mother is white, his father is black. So when Marva shows up to cast her vote in the election and sees that Duke is having a hard time doing the same because he's not on the precinct rolls, she decides to step in. And together, they spend an entire day getting to know each other while also working toward getting Duke's vote cast and then helping eliminate barriers to election for people in their entire community. It's this really fast-paced, delightful, and socially conscious read that is by turn spot on in addressing the realities of how hard it can be to vote in an election while also being this sweet and swoony romance between Marva and Duke. Marva's really hard exterior starts to break down and Duke, he he really helps her sort of do this and discover that she's not as hard as she likes to think she is. There's a lot of really great stuff in here about activism that will appeal to readers young and who maybe aren't so young. And I particularly love the way that Marva and Duke discover how small things really do add up to big things. So it's voting matters. It's very, very important. But other things that matter are helping people get to the polls, helping ensure people are still actively registered. And those things on the micro level really help achieve something great on the broader level. And that is The Voting Booth by Brandy Colbert. I am really excited to read that one. So my next pick is one that I'm sort of cheating a little bit because it doesn't take place all in one day, but it takes one day and plays with the reverberations of that day. And that is The Bridge by Bill Konigsberg. So it is about Aaron and Tilly, who 
encounter each other when they both arrive at the George Washington Bridge um, because they're both planning to jump off. And the rest of the book, what we see is all of the different outcomes we could have. So right away, I'm like, math permutations. If I'm wrong about that math person, please correct me. But I'm pretty sure that's a permutation because then we have four threads. They could both jump. Neither of them could jump. Aaron could jump and Tilly doesn't, or Tilly could jump and Aaron doesn't. And so the rest of the book plays with um, what those different outcomes could lead to. So this is this is heavy. Like watching Bill work on this, like through being his Facebook friend and watching his posts, like I can tell how much care he took in it. And I have had to put it down just because it was a lot for me at the moment. But I think for people who can handle it, it is it is a really rewarding and like very thoughtful, I mean, painstakingly written book about really, really heavy issues. So I'm I'm planning to pick it up again now. I needed like a little break. But yeah, it's just it's such a cool idea and I'm just really excited to see where it turns. So hella trigger warning, but worth picking up if you can emotionally work through it. And that is The Bridge by Bill Konigsberg. So I'm going to talk about one more and then quickly talk about another one. And um, the first one is Rosie's Red by Cecil Castellucci. And I'll start by saying it's been a while since I've read this one. It came out in 2010. And that's when I read it. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say that readers who are into tiny pretty things, and particularly the ballet and relationships Angle, this is going to be one to pick up. It's set in 1980s New York City and follows two ballet dancers, one who is American and one who is Russian, as each girl recounts the friendship they formed with one another over a single fateful night. It digs into the Cold War, into what it feels like to be isolated when choosing a life in the performing arts, and also how sociocultural differences can be something that help two people find deep connection with one another. It's a super short book, under 200 pages, so readers who are looking for something quick and immersive will do well with this one. And then continuing on with more of Castellucci's catalog, which I feel has gotten a little lost in the last few years. She has been writing for a really long time, and she is still writing both YA and comics. And that is Rose Sees Red by Cecil Castellucci. And then I really quickly wanted to highlight a brand new book. I think it'll be out when you listen. And that is The Girls I've Been by Tess Sharp. And this is a locked room thriller about a girl who is with her two best friends when they are going to the bank to deposit some money. And there is a pair of folks who come in to try to rob the bank. It turns into this hostage situation. It's told over a short time period. I can't remember how many hours, but throughout it, we start to get to know Nora, the main character, and how she grew up with this mother who was the queen of grift, and how over the course of her young life, her mom had sort of used her for a lot of her grifting activities, and in doing so, Nora really developed uh, the ability to take on multiple roles as different people, and she uses the skills that she learned from her mom to help dissolve the situation in the bank and get everybody out safely. And that is The Girls I've Been by Tess Sharp. My last choice is also my um, TBR choice, so I haven't read it (laughs) yet. Um, I know you have. And that Mm -hmm. is We Didn't Ask for This by Adi Al-Sayed. It's about Central International School and their annual lock-in. 
And for six students, this year's lock-in is the answer to their dreams. The chance to finally win the contest. Kiss the guy. Make a friend. Become the star of a story that will be passed down from student to student for years to come. But then a group of students, led by Marisa Cuevas, stage an eco-protest and chain themselves to the doors, vowing to keep everyone trapped inside until their list of demands is met. While some studies rally to the cause, others are devastated as they watch their plans fall apart. And Marisa, once so certain of her goals, must now decide just how far she'll go to attain them. That is the blurb from Goodreads I should have stated at the beginning. I'm not that good at coming up with blurbs on the spot. I'm pretty good, but I'm not that good. I am super excited about this. It's kind of, you know, there's always the kid who wishes they could have been locked in the toy store, you know, overnight. And there's a Sweet Valley Kids book about Jessica and Elizabeth being locked in a toy store. And... Yeah, this is and this is exactly what I was thinking of about like kind of summer camp and conferences and those like hyper emotional, hyper focused experiences you have with people. So I'm super duper excited to read this one. And the way this one is set up too, I love this idea of thinking about it as this super intense and emotional experience because it is for everybody involved, the girl and her partners trying to really make a point about environmentalism and activism therein, as well as the kids who are just at the lock-in for a good time and are now like, this is not fun. It's it's a fascinating look at those sort of dynamics in such a confined space and confined period of time. Yeah, I'm very excited. I thought I had the audio and it turns out I have the ebook, so it'll take me a little longer to get to it because I have some other books I have to prioritize for work reasons, but super stoked because I really liked North of Happy by Adil Said. So I assume I will love this one as well. And I'm going to cover our next sponsor and then we can go into our other very <laughs> New Year's Eve appropriate but still fun topic for the <laughs> day. And our next sponsor is We Free the Stars by Hafsa Faisal. Proclaimed by Time magazine as one of the top 100 fantasy books of all time, We Hunt the Flame has set the world on fire. Readers everywhere have fallen in love with this gripping story of discovery, conquering fear, and taking identity into your own hands. Now the saga continues. Lush and striking, hopeful and devastating, We Free the Stars is the masterful conclusion to the Sands of Arawiya duology by New York Times bestselling author Hafsa Faisal. I'm excited because as you and I both agree, it's more fun to read a series when you know it's all done so that you don't have to yep. wait. So yep. It's been on my on my TBR and now that they're both out, I'm like, okay, I'm willing to to go and get started <laughs> on this now. <laughs> so on that topic before we dig in to our next like theme topic, I finally picked up the diviners. Anybody who's been listening has Note, I've been talking about this for years, about wanting to read it and waiting and waiting and waiting until all the books are out. And I could not feel more justified in my choice because I blew through the first book last weekend and I got to the end and I was like, all right, I need book two. And it was like I could immediately request it from the library and it is sitting in my pile for this coming weekend, too. And there's just something so satisfying about that. Like, I don't have to wait, you know, like I could wait a week, I can wait two weeks, I can wait three weeks, but I don't have to wait a year or three years or five years, you know, for the whole thing. So thank you. 
for sticking with me. And also thank you to me for validating my own stance on like, I want to read series books, but not until I can get them all. Right. And that was like a seven year series, I think. Mm -hmm. I know even she like, kind of like Bill's book, I think Libba Bray was like, this is intense. Like, I want to write this, but also it it takes a lot out of you sometimes writing things, Mm -hmm. not just you know, for me, it takes a lot out of me because it's butt and chair, but also like emotionally, it can be very draining to write. So <laughs> don't blame her at all. Right. And you just think about how much of your life happens too, especially if you're signing on to write a series, like how different your personal life changes within two to three years, let alone almost 10, you know, and that really can have a huge impact on the story you're writing and how it shifts and changes. Definitely. Okay, so our next topic is end of the world books. And (laughs) it's funny, because I knew some of the ones I wanted to talk to, but I also tend to like to just, you know, kind of Google or go to Goodreads list just to type in a topic and see what else I might have forgotten about. And anytime you type in apocalypse books or apocalyptic books, your search results will always go like, you definitely mean post-apocalyptic. And it's actually kind of harder to find sort of the, like, everything is on fire books than Mm -hmm. the everything was on fire books. So I think it's a cool topic that is harder than it first appears to be. Do you want to kick us off? Sure. Um, So this is a book I'm still reading. I'm not done with yet. And it is Burn by Patrick Ness. So it's about dragons, and of all the fantasy creatures in the world, I think dragons are the ones that are least interesting to me. So I saw it and was like, nope, but then something about it, you know, kind of tugged at me, so I decided to pick it up anyway. And it takes place in 1957, which already I was like, I don't see a lot of books that take place in the 50s. And you know, we're so into 50s nostalgia. And then, you know, the 70s and 80s were into 50s nostalgia. So I think often, you know, we think poodle skirts and going out for milkshakes with the gang. But this one's definitely a little more kind of the rundown part of the 50s. So it's about a girl named Sarah, who, when it opens, she and her dad, um, her widow or father, are waiting in a parking lot for their new employee to help on their farm. And their new employee is a dragon. Because in this world, when you are like dirt poor, you can only hire dragons. Like those are the only workers you can afford. And there's these very classist and speciesist attitudes about dragons that even her father has. Like it's sort of this you know, like, I'm embarrassed to have to hire this. And, you know, it's America still. So we also make people feel embarrassed about poverty, which is a whole other conversation. But this dragon, you know, they have hired and it turns out her father is already kind of planning on cheating the dragon because he can't actually afford him. In the meantime, they have this dragon and People generally try not to get to know dragons. They, you know, kind of just treat them as the hired help, which they are, and lower class non-citizens. But this one seems to have an attachment to Sarah. Like, he kind of flies in, literally, and rescues her from some sticky situations. And in the meantime, we have a boy who is a member of, you know, what outsiders would call a cult, what his, you know, group would call a religion that worships dragons. And 
you start to get the feeling that they're off to not necessarily prevent the apocalypse or the second coming, so to speak, but to just be ready to welcome it. So like I said, not done yet, but I know it's kind of everyone is on their way to meet each other. And the book also just, you know, it does really good things with race and class. And we have this bigot sheriff. And, you know, you have a family that's dealing with the aftermath of having been sent to a Japanese internment camp during the war, um, because it, you know, it was only like 13 years ago that they were there. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. And now I have been put in my place because it turns out someone found a way for me to care about dragons. So <laughs> that's Burn by Patrick Ness. My pick is, I would call it a little bit more post-apocalyptic, and yet it also feels apocalyptic at the same time. And it's a graphic novel called Odessa by Jonathan Hill. I read this one a couple weeks ago, but I am going to do the description of it and then talk a little bit more about it, the official description, because I can't phrase it any better. And... I want to put of note first that this is the first in a series, and I did not know that until I got to the end of the book, and there is a pretty big cliffhanger. So when I got to that part, I was like, I wish I had known beforehand. So this is for any completionists. You can read the first book, but you'll get to the end and you'll want the next. So here's a description. Eight years ago, an earthquake, the big one, hit along the Cascadia fault line, toppling cities and changing landscapes all up and down the west coast of the United States. Life as we know it changed forever. But for Vietnamese-American Virginia Crane, life changed shortly after the earthquake when her mother left and never came back. So Ginny has gotten to, used to this life without her mother, helping her father take care of her two younger brothers, Wes and Harry. But when a mysterious package arrives for her 18th birthday, her life is shaken up yet again. For the first time, Ginny wants something more than to survive, and it might be a selfish desire, but she's determined to find out what happened to her mother, even if it means leaving her family behind. The blurb calls us a great pick for fans of Scott Westerfeld and Neil Schusterman, and I 100% agree. It's a story that is about this girl wanting to know, like, what happened to her mother. And it takes place in what was formerly the Bay Area, which has been completely demolished by this earthquake. And so she's going on this journey, and the world that she once knew looks nothing like it did before. And she has to figure out which people are safe people to trust and which ones aren't. As she uses the clues in her, in this package that shows up, as well as what she gleans from those who are around her about how to find her mother. There are a lot of like action scenes in this one. Again, graphic novel, so you get to visually see it. And I'm super curious what's going to happen because we, we are left on a cliffhanger and it sort of changes the entire direction of the story. For <sighs> one thing that kind of annoyed me when I was reading is that it didn't feel like it had the biggest emotional arc to it. It felt very physical, but that cliffhanger made me think, okay, the emotional part is coming. Not that there's not emotion in it, but we're going to get a little bit more of it in the second edition of this book. And that is Odessa by Jonathan Hill. My next pick is The Marrow Thieves by Cherie Dimaline. So this one is also like quite cinematic. I actually like did a scene of it as a storyboard for like a film adaptation class about indigenous literature. So. I was like, oh, I can see this already. And it is, it takes place in Canada. 
or in, you know, sort of what what was Canada, you know, but it's near the end of the world. So borders are a bit more of, you know, an idea. And um, so the world has been like destroyed by global warming. So right away, we have this sort of like, well, this is like sort of our future anyway. And in this world, people have lost the ability to dream. And by people, I don't mean all people. I mean, all people except indigenous people. And they have found out that it is in their blood marrow that or bone marrow, bone marrow makes blood that the key to dreaming lies. And in the grand scheme of, you know, the the Western world trying to steal and destroy everything from indigenous people, they have decided, well, you know, this is this is the cure. So we should just take these people's marrow, even though taking all of their marrow means death for the person the marrow is being stolen from. So a little more serious serious than, you know, our actual method of marrow donation <laughs> that we can do right now in real life. So you have Native people who are now on the run trying to save their own lives by not being taken by these people who are regularly being rounded up, kidnapped, put into kind of internment camps, containment camps. So we have a 15-year-old boy who is with some other, um, with like a small group of essentially refugees in their own land trying to escape these people who call themselves recruiters instead of you know, murderers from, so that they don't have their marrow taken. So the concept alone, I was like, I really haven't haven't seen that. And then just all of the the ways that it so parallels and really condemns the horrible things we have done to Native people for hundreds and hundreds of years. And just for anyone who likes like a very, you know, high stakes, apocalyptic adventure, it's it's a great pick. So that's The Marrow Thieves by Cherie Dimeline. I'm reading it right now and just am co-signing on everything you said. My next pick is We Are the Ants by Sean David Hutchinson, and I adore this book. Readers who haven't picked up any of Hutchinson's book will, books will do really great starting here. This is a book about a queer teen boy who is abducted by aliens and given an ultimatum. He has 144 days to decide whether or not to blow up the earth and end humankind as we know it. Although he has a whole bunch of things working against him in his own life, this isn't as easy a choice for Henry as it might seem. And the book dives deep into ideas of grief and loss, as well as meaning and purpose of building a life that means something to you. It digs into love and friendship and family and mental illness. And when you know you need to get help because you're ill, because it's an illness and not a flaw in your personality, this is a bigger book. It's almost 500 pages, but it is a quick read. It's a compelling read. And it makes you think about whether or not you would press the button, particularly if you were in Henry's situation. And that is We Are the Ants by Sean David Hutchinson. My next pick is sort of cheating because it's, we'll say, avoidance of the end of the world. And that is Starglass by Phoebe North. So usually my fun little pitch for this is Crypto Jews in Space. Um, which I love right away just because there's not a lot of Jewish YA that's not about the Holocaust. And this one, um, for people who don't know, crypto Jews are um, Jews who outwardly converted to Catholicism to avoid the death sentence of the Inquisition in Spain and Portugal, but who still retained a lot of their traditions. 
And usually, you know, maybe only one member of a generation kind of knew, like, we're Jewish. But there are, are traditions that even if people didn't know that they were Jewish anymore, as generations went on, they were still very clearly Jewish. So this one has that as well. You have a girl named Tara who, you know, recalls her mother lighting candles on Friday nights. And she didn't know why, but it was a cool tradition her mom had. And then we have, you know, a spaceship that is called the Asherah, which is a Hebrew word. So there's all kinds of fun um, Jewish Easter eggs, which is a joke, but also... That's a word we all know for like little bonus things. I can't think of a better word. But it's also just fun for anyone to read if you like space stories um, or kind of dystopian stories. Because we have Tara who witnesses a crime and now all of a sudden, instead of, you know, kind of working her dead end boring job and hoping that they find a new planet... She now is like kind of involved in this like intrigue and espionage and secrets that she had no interest in being a part of. So they only have a few months to go before they think they will arrive on a planet that is habitable. And so she's just hoping she can kind of make it out unscathed, even though there are people angry that she witnessed this crime. So there is a sequel. It is very different in feel. It's just a duology. Um, the sequel I would describe as much more Robert Heinlein than the, than the first one. But Starglass, you can easily read it as a standalone, which I respect. Um, it's not just an epic where someone just pressed print in a random page. <laughs> like It definitely stands alone as a story. But if you really love the characters, you have another book to read. So that is Starglass by Phoebe North. My next pick is The Sound of Stars by Alicia Dow. And let me begin by saying I haven't read this one. It is on my TBR because Eric was raving about it last year. And it sounds fabulous. I don't think it has hit as many radars as it deserves to. Here's the little, the little blip. Two years ago, a misunderstanding between the leaders of Earth and the invading Elori resulted in the deaths of one-third of the world's population. 17-year-old Janelle Ellie Baker survives in an Elori-controlled center in New York City. Deemed dangerously volatile because of their initial reaction to the invasion, humanity's emotional transgressions are now grounds for execution. All art, books, and creative expression are illegal, but Ellie breaks the rules by keeping a secret library. When a book goes missing, she's terrified that the Elori will track it back to her and kill her. Born in a lab, Morris was raised to be emotionless. When he finds Ellie's legal library, he is duty-bound to deliver her for execution. The trouble is he finds himself drawn to human music and is in desperate need of more. They're both breaking the rules for love of art, and Ellie inspires the same feelings in him that music does. Ellie's and humanity's fate rests in the hands of an alien she should fear. Morris has a lot of secrets, but also a potential solution thousands of miles away. The two embark on a wild and dangerous road trip with a bag of books, their favorite albums, all the while making a story and song of their own that just might save them both. This has so many fascinating elements to it. You have the end of the world, you have the end of humanity, you have the importance of arts and humanities, and you also have a road trip and a robot type main character and that is the sound of stars by alicia dow that does sound great i do feel bad for pretty much every 2020 author like they didn't they didn't get what they deserved yes <laughs> it is i mean what can we do we're trying to catch up now but 
yeah, I do feel I feel for those authors. And I think I'm going to have to feel for 2021 authors as well. <laughs> so my last choice is, well, I discovered it while looking for you know books that were still in the apocalypse zone and not in the post yet. And I found out it's out of print, so I'm talking about it because I very much want to read it. <laughs> and I can only find a used copy for like $60, so I need the publisher to reissue it. And that is So This Is How It Ends by Twee T. Sutherland. So it starts off with a girl named Kali who wakes up in a subway car in New York City and then walks out and realizes it's completely empty. Then we have two other teens who experience an earthquake in L.A. and a boy in Chile and a boy in Egypt. And all of them have just realized that they are like the only people left on Earth as far as they can see. So they don't know why they have survived, whether it's by chance or whether it's some sort of destiny and why they feel drawn to each other. I love the idea of this sort of international adventure. And yeah, it's compelling to to think of what teens will do, you know, when they are left to rebuild the world on their own. So I know it's a series, which means I'm going to need someone to reissue all of the books or I'll be annoyed because I want to read from start to finish. But it sounds amazing. The cover is kind of redonkulous. Um, the reviews I read, everyone was like, what is the deal? Like, no one wants to pick this up because the cover is so weird. It has like a person riding a hummingbird. But <laughs> it sounds so, so great. So somebody please get me a copy that isn't a bazillion dollars and then get copies for everyone else because I'm sure it's going to be awesome. And that is So This Is How It Ends by Twee T. Sutherland. My last pick is going to be a very short one, and that is This Is Not a Test by Courtney Summers. I wanted to include a zombie novel in this book because it makes perfect sense. But the reason I wanted to include this title in particular is because Sloane, the main character, is one of the most fascinating characters. She does not want to survive this zombie outbreak. She lost her sister, and she has really found no reason to keep on living after her sister died. And though she is currently barricaded in a high school with five others, she hopes that security fails and she can finally see the end of her own life. But what happens when she's surrounded by people who want to live? Does she reevaluate her life and what reasons there may still be to go forward? It's this really fascinating and immersive premise about what happens when you simply don't want to survive the apocalypse or the end of the world or zombie attack, you know, all those things. And what happens when you are surrounded by those who do, who are desperate to continue on. And that is This Is Not a Test by Courtney Summers. So thank you so much for tuning in this week. Please leave feedback about the show on Apple Podcasts. It lets other people know about us and tells us how we're doing. Thanks again to today's sponsors for helping make the show possible. And thank you to our audio editor, Jen Zink, who does not fetch about how often I blow my nose and clear my throat. <laughs> you can follow me, Sarah Hannah Gomez, on Twitter and Instagram as SHGMcLicious, as well as Instagram again at BookishGirlFit. And Kelly, what about you? You can follow me on Instagram as HeyKellyJensen. We'll, we'll talk, talk to, to you again, again in, in two weeks. weeks. Bye. Ooh, yikes. <laughs> <laughs>